Chapters 13 and 14 of the Book of Life by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 Exploring the Subconscious Discusses Automatic Writing, the Analysis of Dreams, and other methods by which a whole new universe of life has been brought to human knowledge. One of the most common methods of exploring the subconscious mind is the method of automatic writing. I have never tried this myself, but tens of thousands of people are sitting every night with a Ouija board in front of them, holding a pencil on a piece of paper and letting their subconscious minds write what they please. Most of them are hoping to get messages from the dead, a problem which we shall discuss in the next chapter. Suffice it for the moment to say that automatic writing and table wrapping and other devices of mediumship have opened up to us a vast mass of subconscious mentality. A part of the scientific world still takes a contemptuous attitude and calls this all humbug. But many of our greatest scientists have been persuaded to investigate and have become convinced that in this mass of subconsciousness there is mingled not merely the mind of the medium, but the minds of all those present, and possibly other minds as well. For my part, I do not see how anyone can study disinterestedly the proceedings of the Society for Psychical Research and not become convinced that telepathy at least is one of the powers of the subconscious mind. Telepathy is what is popularly known as thought transmission. Everyone must know people who are what is called psychic, and will know what is happening to some friend in another part of the world, or will go upstairs because they sense that someone wants them, or will go to the door because they have a hunch that someone is coming. And maybe these things are only chance. But you will be unscientific if you do not take the trouble to read and learn what modern investigators have brought out on such subjects. This much is certain, and is denied by no competent investigator. Whatever has been in your mind is there still, and it is possible to find a way of tapping that buried memory. An old woman, delirious with fever, begins to babble in a strange language, and it is discovered that she is talking ancient Hebrew. The woman is entirely illiterate, and her conscious memory knows no language but her own. Her conscious mind has no ideas behind those of her domestic life and the gossip of the village. But investigation is made, and it is discovered that when this woman was a girl, she worked in the home of a Hebrew scholar, and heard him reading aloud. She did not understand a word of what she heard, and was not consciously listening to it. Nevertheless, every syllable of it had been stored away forever by her subconscious mind. Innumerable cases of this sort have been established, and, as a matter of fact, we might have been prepared for such discoveries by the memory feats of the conscious mind. It is well known that Mozart, when a child, could listen to a new opera and go home and play it over, note for note. At present there is a child in America, given exhibitions in public, carrying on thirty games of chess at the same time. 
there have been others who do sums of mental arithmetic such as multiplying thirty-two figures by thirty-two figures or reciting the bible backwards all this seems incredible and yet there is something still more incredible suppose that these same powers which are stored in our subconscious minds were stored also in the minds of animals a few years ago maurice metterlink published a book the unknown guest in the course of which he tells about his experiments with the so-called elberfeld horses two animals which had been trained for years by their owner to give signals by moving their forefeet and which apparently could count and divide and multiply large sums and extract square and cube root and spell out names and recognize sounds and scents and colors and read time from the face of a watch of course it is easy to say that this is absurd that the horses must have got some signals from their trainer but as it happened they would do their work in the absence of their trainer they would do it in the dark or with a sack over their heads and the best scientific minds of germany were unable to suggest any test conditions which could not be met there have been many gigantic frauds in the world and this may have been one of them on the other hand there have been many new discoveries and i for my part will finish exploring the miracles of the subconscious mind of man before i presume to say that anything is impossible in the subconscious mind of a horse or a dog also i will wait for some learned person to explain to me how the subconscious minds of horses and dogs know enough to build and repair their bones and teeth so cleverly that modern architectural and engineering science could teach them nothing i ask also if it is possible to find a region in the subconsciousness which is common to two people why is it absurd to suggest that there might be a region common to a man and a horse why is this any more absurd than that they should eat the same food and breathe the same air and feel the same affection and be frightened at the same dangers the only persons who will be dogmatic about such subjects are the persons who are ignorant those who take the trouble to investigate discover more wonderful things every day and they realize that we have here a whole universe of knowledge to which we have as yet barely opened the doors consider for example the facts which we are acquiring on the subject of personality and what it means you would say perhaps that if there is anything you know positively it is that you are one person and have never been anybody else and that your body belongs to you and that nobody else ever has used or ever can use it but what would you say if i told you that tomorrow you might cease to be and somebody else might be in possession of your body walking it around and wearing its clothes and spending its money what if i were to tell you that there might be in you or in your body half a dozen different personalities which you have never known or dreamed of and that tomorrow there might break out a war between them and you as to which of the half dozen people should hear with your ears and speak with your tongue and walk about with your clothes on 
unless you are familiar with the literature of multiple personality you would surely say that this was unbelievable quite as much so as a mathematical horse let us begin with the case of reverend ansel bourne who was many years ago a perfectly respectable clergyman in a rhode island town one day he disappeared and his family did not hear of him a year or two later there was a storekeeper in a town in Pennsylvania who suddenly came to himself as the Reverend Ansel Bourne, not knowing what he had been in the meantime or how he came to be keeping a store. Under hypnotism it developed that he had in him two personalities, and his trance personality recollected all that had been happening in the meantime and told about it freely. Or take the still more fascinating case of a young lady who is known in the literature of psychotherapy as miss beauchamp her story is told in the book the dissociation of personality by dr morton prince of boston some thirty years ago miss beauchamp a very conscientious and dignified young lady became nervous and ill and took to doing strange things which were a source of shame and humiliation to her under hypnotism it was discovered to be a case of multiple personality the other personality who finally gave herself the name of sally was entirely different in character from miss beauchamp being mischievous vain and primitive as a child she conceived an intense dislike for miss beauchamp whom she called by abusive names at times when she could get possession of miss beauchamp's body she delighted in playing humiliating tricks upon her enemy spending her money running her into debt breaking her engagements disgracing her before her friends sally was always well and miss beauchamp was always ill and sally would take the body for which they fought for possession and take it for long and exhausting walks and leave it cold and miserable lost and penniless in the possession of miss beauchamp and of course this made miss beauchamp more and more a wreck and sally took possession of more and more of her time sally knew everything that miss beauchamp did and thought but miss beauchamp did not know about sally she only knew that there were gaps in her life during which she did things she could not explain and because she did not want her friends to think her insane she would try to hide this dreadful condition of affairs but sally would spoil her plans by writing letters to her friends and also by writing insulting letters for miss beauchamp to find when she took possession again then one day after several years of treatment there appeared yet another personality who knew nothing about miss beauchamp or sally either and only knew what miss beauchamp had known up to some years before miss beauchamp had a college education and wrote and spoke french sally knew no french and tried in vain to learn it the new personality did not have a college education at all nevertheless after long experiment the story of which is as fascinating as any novel you ever read dr prince discovered that this was the real miss beauchamp the others were split off personalities he traced the cause to a severe mental shock and succeeded in the end in combining the first miss beauchamp with the last and in suppressing the obstinate and wanton sally 
as you read this story you watch him mentally murdering a human being sally clamors pitifully for life but he condemns her to death and relentlessly executes his sentence it is a movie thriller with a happy ending and i should think it would make disconcerting reading to persons who believe that each of us is one immortal soul or has one immortal soul and is responsible for it to a personal god there is never any end to the problems of these multiple personalities and each case is a test of the judgment and ingenuity of the specialist he will try to make one personality stick and will fail and will have to accept another or a combination of two in one case he found that he could not get the right personality to stick except under hypnosis so he decided to leave the man in a mild state of trance and the new personality lived all the rest of its life in that condition if you wish to know more about this subject you can find books in any well-equipped library i mention one the riddle of personality by h addington bruce because it contains in the appendix an excellent list of the literature of the subconscious in all its many aspects there is another and most fascinating method of exploring the underworld of the mind and that is the study of dreams some fifteen years ago a psychotherapist in new york told me about the discoveries of a physician in vienna and gave me some pamphlets written in very difficult and technical german since then this professor freud has been translated and has become a fad and the absurdities of his followers make one a little apologetic for him but we do not give up jesus because of the torturers and bigots who call themselves christians and in the same way we have no right to blame freud for all the absurdities of the psychoanalysts probably there never was a time in human history when there were not people who interpreted dreams and you can still buy dream books for twenty-five cents and learn that a white horse means that you are going to get a letter from your sweetheart tomorrow and then you can buy another dream book telling you that a white horse means that there is going to be a death in your family within the year naturally this prejudice is thinking people against dream analysis yet dreams are facts and every fact has its cause and if you dream about a white horse there must assuredly be some reason for your dreaming this particular thing of course we know that if you eat mincemeat pie and welsh rabbit at midnight you'll dream about something terrible but will it be snakes or will it be a railroad wreck or will it be white horses trampling over you obviously it may be a million different unpleasant things and what is it that picks out this or that from the infinite store of your memory and brings it into the region of half-consciousness which we call dream professor freud's discovery is in brief that the dream is a wish fulfillment our instincts present to our consciousness a great mass of impulses and desires and among these the consciousness selects what it pleases and represses and refuses to recognize or to act upon the others but maybe these decisions are not altogether satisfactory to the subconsciousness 
the mind of the body is in rebellion against the mind shall we say of reason or shall we say of society the mind of society otherwise known as the moral law says that you shall be a good little boy and shall go to school and learn what you are told and on sunday go to church and sit very still through a long sermon whereas the body of a boy would rather be a savage hunting birds nests and scalping enemies and exploring magic caves full of precious jewels so the subconsciousness of the boy balked and miserable awaits its time and finds its satisfaction when the boy is asleep and his moral censor has relaxed its control this dream mind is not a logical and orderly thing like the conscious mind it is not business-like and civilized it does not deal in abstractions it is far more interested in things than in words it does not present us with formulas but with pictures and with stories of weird and wonderful happenings it is like the mind of the race which we study in legends and religions it does not tell us that the sun is a mass of incandescent hydrogen gas so and so many miles in diameter it tells us that the sun is a cosmic hero who slays the black dragon of night so the mind of our body presents us with innumerable pictures and symbols exactly such as we find in poetry there may be and frequently is dispute as to just what a poet meant by this or that particular image but if we read all the work of any particular poet we get a certain impression of that poet's individuality if he is always talking about the perfume of women's hair and the gleam of the white flesh of nymphs in the thickets we are not left in doubt as to what is wrong with this poet and just so when the expert sets to work to examine all the dreams that any one person can remember day after day sooner or later the expert observes that these dreams hover continually about one particular subject and by questioning the person he can find out what is the secret which is troubling the person perhaps without the person himself being aware of it of course there are many people who like nothing so much as to talk about themselves and many are spending their time and their money on the latest fad of being psyched who would in any properly organized world be put to work at hoeing weeds or washing their own clothes nevertheless it is a fact that there are real mental disorders in the world and innumerable honest and earnest people who have something the matter with them which they do not understand here is one way by which the conscientious investigator can find out what the trouble is and make it clear to them and by establishing harmony between their conscious and their subconscious minds can many times put them in a way of health and happiness through psychoanalysis we are enabled to understand the split personality and its cause we discover that almost everyone has more or less rudimentary forms of multiple personality hidden within them made out of desires and traits which he does not like or which the world forces him to drive into the deeps of his being these may be evil impulses of sex or violence they may be the most noble altruisms or artistic yearnings 
ridiculous things in a world of hustle. A quite normal man or woman may keep a separate self, apart from the world, living a jekyll life of business propriety and a hide life of religious or musical ecstasy. Or again, the repressed impulses may integrate themselves in the unconscious, and you may have genius or lunacy or both, great wits to madness near allied. The modern knowledge on such dark mysteries you may find in hearts the psychology of insanity. End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 The Problem of Immortality Discusses the survival of personality from the moral point of view. That is, have we any claim upon life entitling us to live forever? As we explore the deeps of the subconsciousness, our own and other people's, we find ourselves confronting the strange question. Is it all our own mind and that of other living people, or are we by any chance dealing with the minds of those who are dead? A great many earnest people, and some very learned people, are fully convinced that the latter is the case and we have now to consider their arguments. When I was a little boy, I used to read and hear ghost stories, and would shudder over them. But I was given to understand that all this was just imagination. I must not take ghosts seriously, any more than fairies or dragons or nymphs or satyrs. For an educated person to take ghosts seriously, well, such a person would be almost as comical as that supremely comical person, the flying machine man. Would you believe it? In those days, there actually were people who believed that they could learn to fly in the air, and spent their time manufacturing machines for this purpose. There was a scientist in Washington who had this bug, and built himself a machine and started to fly, and he fell into the Potomac River. We all laughed at him. We laughed so long and so loud that we killed the poor man. And then... A few years later, somebody took that machine of Professor Langley's and actually did fly with it. But that was after I had grown up a bit more, and was not quite so ready to laugh at an idea because it was new. I remember vividly my first meeting with a man who believed in ghosts. He was a Unitarian clergyman, the Reverend Minot J. Savage of New York. I was sixteen years old, and just breaking out of my theological shell, and Dr. Savage helped to pry me loose. He was a grave and kindly man, of great learning and intelligence, and I remember vividly my consternation when one day he told me, oh yes, he had seen many ghosts. He was accustomed to talk with ghosts every now and then. There was no doubt whatever that ghosts existed. He told me many stories. I remember one so well that I do not have to go back to his books to look up the details. It was in the days before the Atlantic Cable, and he had a friend who took a steamer to England. One night Dr. Savage was awakened and found the ghost of his friend standing by his bedside. The ship had gone down off the Irish coast, so the ghost declared, but the friend did not want Dr. Savage to think that he had suffered from the pangs of drowning. 
he had been struck on the left side of the head by a beam of the ship and had been killed instantly dr savage wrote down these circumstances and had them witnessed by a number of people and two or three weeks later he received word that the body of his friend had been found on the irish coast with the left side of his head crushed in so then of course i studied the subject of ghosts i have studied it off and on ever since and have read most of the important new discoveries and arguments of the psychic researchers to begin with i will mention the contents of two large volumes gurney's phantasms of the living in this book are narrated many hundreds of cases of which dr savage's story is a type it appears that persons at the moment of death or in times of great mental stress do somehow have the power to communicate with other people even at the other side of the world a few such cases might be attributed to coincidence or to fraud but when you have so many cases attested in minute detail by so many hundreds of otherwise honest people you are not being scientific but simply stupid if you dismiss the whole subject with contempt gurney discusses the phenomenon and its probable causes we know of course that hallucinations are among the most common of psychic phenomenon your subconscious mind can be caused to see and hear and feel anything likewise it has power to cause you to see and hear and feel anything in practically all cases of multiple personality some of the split-off personalities can cause the others to see and hear and feel and the consciousness you must understand takes these things to be just as real as real things there is no way you can tell a hallucination from reality except to ask other people about it and if we admit the idea of telepathy we may say that phantasms are hallucinations caused by this means that is the subconscious mind of your wife or your mother or your friend who is ill or dying transmits to your subconscious mind some vivid impression which causes your own subconscious mind to present to your consciousness a perfect image of that person walking and talking with you and your consciousness has no way of telling but that the image is real so much for phantasms of the living but are there any phantasms of the dead are there any cases in which the time of the appearance can be proven to be subsequent to the time of death even this would not prove survival of course it is perfectly possible that the telepathic impulse might be delayed in our own minds it might not flash into consciousness until our own state of mind made it possible can we say that there are cases in which the facts communicated are such as to convince us that the person was already dead and was telling us something as a dead person and not as a living one before we go into this question let us clear the ground for the subject by discussing the survival of personality from a more general standpoint what is it that we want to prove what are the probabilities of its being true 
what would be the consequences of its not being true? Have we any grounds other than those of psychic research for thinking that it is true, or that it may be true, or that it ought to be true? What, so to speak, are the morals of the doctrine of immortality? Well, to begin with, the survival of the soul after death and forever is one of the principal doctrines of the Christian religion. Many devout Christians will read this book, and I will seem to them blasphemous when I say that this argument does not concern me. I count myself one of the lovers and friends of Jesus. I am presumptuous enough to believe that if he were on earth, I would understand him and get along with him excellently. But I do not know any reason why I should believe this, that, or the other doctrine about life, because any religious sect founded upon the name of Jesus commands me so to believe. I see no more reason for adopting the idea of heaven because it is a Christian idea than I see for adopting the idea of reincarnation, because it is a precious and holy idea to hundreds of millions of Buddhists. I have some very good friends who are theosophists, and are quite convinced of this idea of reincarnation. That is, that the soul comes back to life over and over again in many different bodies, thus completing itself and renewing itself and expiating its sins. My theosophist friends have a most elaborate and complicated body of what they consider to be knowledge on this subject. Yet I have to take the liberty of saying that I cannot see that it has any relation to reality. It seems to me as completely unproven as any other fairy story or myth or legend. For example, the seven infernos of Dante, and the elaborate and complicated torments that are suffered there. But, it will be argued, Jesus rose from the dead, and thus proved the immortality of the soul. Now, in the first place, there are many learned investigators who consider there is insufficient evidence for believing that Jesus ever lived. And certainly, if this be so, it will be difficult to prove that he rose from the dead. Again, it was a common occurrence for crucified men not to die. Sometimes it happened that their guards allowed them to be spirited away, even nowadays we have known of prison guards being bribed to allow a prisoner to escape. Again, the events of the return of Jesus may have been just such psychic phenomena as we are trying in this chapter to explain. Or, once more, they may have been purely legends. A very brief study will convince a thinking person that the people of that time were ready to believe anything and to accept facts upon such authority, and to make them the basis for a scientific conclusion, is simply to be childish. I shall be told, of course, that it is in the Bible, and therefore it must be true. The Bible is inspired, you say, and perhaps this is so, but then a great deal of other literature is inspired, and that does not relieve me of the task of comparing these various inspirations and judging them, and picking out what is of use to me. The Bible is the literature of the ancient Hebrews for a couple of thousand years. It represents what the race mind of a great people for one generation after another judged worth recording and preserving. 
You may get an idea what this means if you will picture to yourself a large volume of English literature, containing some Teutonic myths, and the Saxon Chronicles, and the Mort d'Artur, and several of Chaucer's stories, and some Irish fairy tales, and some of Bacon's essays, and Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, and the English prayer book, and the architect's specification for Westminster Abbey, and a good part of Burke's peerage, also Blackstone's commentaries, a number of Wesley's hymns, and Pope's essay on man, and some chapters from Carlyle's past and present, and Gladstone's speeches, and Blake's poems, and Captain Cook's story of his voyage around the world, and Southey's life of Nelson, and Morris's news from nowhere, and Blatchford's Merry England, and scores of pages from Hansard, which is the equivalent of our congressional record. You may find this description irreverent, but do not think it is meant so. Do me the honor to get out your Bible and look it over from this point of view. But if you say, if we die altogether when we finish this earthly life, what becomes of moral responsibility and the punishment of sins? What shall we say to the wicked man to make him be good, if we cannot reward him with a heaven and frighten him with a hell? Well, my first answer is that we have been trying this process for a couple of thousand years, and the results seem to indicate that we might better seek out some other method of inducing men to behave themselves. They do not believe so completely in heaven and hell these days, but there were times in history when they did believe completely, and not merely were the believers just as cruel, they were just as treacherous and just as gluttonous and just as drunken. If you want to satisfy yourself on this point, I refer you to my book, The Prophets of Religion, page 129. Now, as a matter of fact, I think I can discern the outlines of a system of rewards and punishments automatically working in the life of men. I am not sure that I can prove that the wicked always get punished and the virtuous always rewarded. Yet, when I stop and think, I am sure that I would not care to change places with any of the wicked people that I know in this world. Life may not always be getting them, but it has a way of getting their descendants. And I could not be entirely happy if I knew that my son and his sons were going to share the fate which I now observe befalling, for example, the Grand Dukes of Russia and their children. Life is one thing, and it does not exist for the individual, but for the race. Its causes and effects do not always manifest themselves in one individual, but in a line of descendants. Why are they called dynasties? asked one of my professors of history, and a student brought the session to an end by answering, because that is what they always seem to do. But this is not perfect justice, you will argue. It is not perfect, from the point of view of you or of me. But then I ask, what else is there in the world that is perfect from that point of view? Why should our justice be any more perfect than, for example, our health, or our thinking, or our climate, or our government? And... May it not very well be that our justice is up to us in precisely the same way that some of these other things are up to us? Maybe 
what we have to do is to set to work to see to it that virtue does always get rewarded and vice does always get punished right here and now instead of waiting for an omnipotent god to attend to it in some hypothetical heaven i find this life of mine very wonderful and enormously interesting i am willing to take it on the terms that it is given and to try to make the best of it and i do not see that i have any right to dictate what shall be given me in some future life if my father gives me a christmas present i am happy and grateful and of course if i know that he is going to give me another present next christmas i am still more happy but i do not see that i have any right to argue that because he gives me one christmas present he must give me an unlimited number of them and i think it would be very ungrateful of me to refuse to thank him for a christmas present until i made sure that i was going to get one the next time neither do i find myself such a wonderful person that i can assert that the morality of the universe absolutely depends upon the fact that i am immortal of course i should like to live forever and to know all the wonderful things that are going to happen in the world and if it is true that i am so to live i shall be immensely delighted but i cannot say that it must be true and all i can do is to investigate the possibilities on this point my view is stated in a sentence of spinoza's he who would love god rightly must not desire that god love him in return to sum up the question of immortality is purely a question of fact it is one to be approached in a spirit of open-minded inquiry entirely unaffected by hopes or fears or dogmas or moral claims it is worthwhile to get clear that we may be immortal even though we do not know it and cannot now prove it it is possible that all psychic research might end in telepathy and still when we die we might wake up and find ourselves alive it might possibly be that some of us are immortal and not all of us it might be that some parts of us are immortal but not the rest it might be that our subconsciousness is immortal and not our consciousness it might be that all of us or some part of us survive for a time but not forever this last is something which i myself am inclined to think may be the case also it seems worthwhile to mention that it is no argument against immortality that we cannot imagine it that we cannot picture a universe consisting of uncountable billions of living souls or what these souls would do to pass the time it may very well be that among these souls there is no such thing as time it may be that they are thoroughly occupied in ways beyond our imagining or again that they are not occupied and under no necessity of being occupied let the person who presents such arguments begin by picturing to you how the brain cells manage to store up the uncounted millions of memories which you have the thousands of words and combinations of words and the thoughts which go with them musical notes and tunes colors and odors and visual impressions memories of the past and hopes of the future and dreams that never were 
where are all these hundreds of millions of things and what are they like when they are not in our consciousness and how do they pass the time and where were they in the hundreds of millions of years before we were born and where will they be in the hundreds of millions of years of the future when our wise men can answer these questions completely it will be time enough for them to tell us about the impossibility of immortality. End of chapter 14